Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Tobias Rose Stockwell talking about social media and specifically how and why it has been designed to produce outrage among users. And when you look at the psychology of the human brain and how it interacts with the features of social media, you start to be able to understand on a much deeper level why these platforms are really problematic for adults and especially for teenagers. When you really do a deep dive into this stuff, you start to develop a much higher level of awareness about what's going on, which can really protect you from a lot of the negative effects of social media. Tobias has been researching this topic for quite a long time now, and he is the author of the new book, Outrage Machine, how tech amplifies discontent, disrupts democracy, and what we can do about it. Tobias is a writer, designer, and media researcher whose work has been featured in major outlets such as The Atlantic, Wired, NPR, BBC, CNN, and many others. His research has been cited in the adoption of many key interventions to reduce toxicity and polarization within leading tech platforms. He previously led humanitarian projects in Southeast Asia focused on civil war reconstruction efforts for which he was honored with an award from the 14th Dalai Lama. We're here with Tobias today to look deeper under the hood of social media sites and to really understand on a much more profound level what's going on when we use social media and why and why using these platforms inevitably leads to feelings of outrage, why it drives a wedge between people and why it often leads us to develop really, really strong beliefs about things that we don't actually understand. And as we'll see, these results can be really problematic if they're left unchecked. I am so excited to have Tobias on the show today to talk about all that and a whole lot more. Tobias, thank you so much for coming on Talking to Teens. Thanks so much for having me. I have just finished reading your book, Outrage Machine. Man, you got a lot of really, really interesting stuff in here. I think it's going to be super relevant. Awesome. Great. I'm excited to, to dig in. Thank you for reading. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I couldn't put this down, really. There's so much meat in here. You really just, you really got me thinking about a lot of topics. What what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was a little bit early in the world of uh, social media, recognizing that it was kind of this weird thing that was uh, very influential and impactful uh, on us. Uh, I had this experience of, of going uh, viral when I was pretty young uh, in the days before social media had really taken over our lives. I was, uh, I've been traveling through Asia as a backpacker immediately after college. I met a monk, uh, this Cambodian monk 
monk, Buddhist monk, who basically uh, invited me out to his village in the middle of nowhere, which was, you know, a, a really fun, interesting opportunity to kind of connect with uh, with uh, a different culture and, you know, have this this uh, meaningful travel experience. I mean, you know, travel is such an important part of a young person's life. It really was for me. Yeah, I got I got pulled out to this this community in the middle of uh, the kind of rice fields in northwestern Cambodia. Uh, he when I got there, he put me in this pagoda while well, I expected to just have this community visit. There was actually several hundred farmers there, common council, village elders, and kind of one by one, they got up and said, uh, thank you for coming. We've been waiting for you. Uh, we we so agree that you've, we, or we were so grateful that you've agreed to help us rebuild our reservoir. So I was, uh, I was, I was shocked to say the least. I was confused. I was like, I'm sorry, uh, but reservoir, <laughs> yeah, are you talking to me? Is there someone else here? So this monk had basically kind of uh, spun up a tall tale to this, to his, the rest of his community there that he had met this guy, that this guy was going to help him rebuild this reservoir, uh, which I certainly uh, was not prepared to do. I was, you know, a backpacker uh, with barely any money, uh, you know, no background in hydrology, not a trust fund kid, uh, nothing, nothing, nothing uh, that that would have suggested that I could actually do this. But uh, I listened to their project and this this monk, he uh, ran a local NGO that provided uh, services to about 6,000 different farmers in that area, in that region. They were collectively trying to rebuild this big reservoir. Now, when I say a reservoir, it was more like a lake like a giant uh, a giant lake that was that provided a second crop of rice uh, through irrigation to uh, to this community there and they were looking for about fifteen thousand dollars to do that uh, and it you know I've, I spent I spent a couple of days with them and just like hearing their story and I'm like why well, you know you definitely have the wrong person but I can uh, I'll at least be an advocate on your behalf and yeah, I'll talk to know. some people you know no promises I'll put in a word see if I can get anybody interested and uh, yeah, you know I'll be in touch yeah I, I wrote an email to friends and family um, back home. And this is in 2003, 2004. So it was like days before social media. And that email landed, uh, went out to some to a listserv, you know, a bunch of people. And in within this listserv, there was there was one link out to a, uh, a site that a friend had designed. And this friend would go on to be one of the first engineers at Twitter. And this site was a social media site. It was a pre a pre Twitter, pre Facebook social media site. And the email uh, and the text in it went viral from that point. So it was for a friend of friends of friends um, all of a sudden i had this like tremendous outpouring of support who people had read this this piece this kind of impassioned piece i had written about the monks and they're like this is amazing how can i help but suddenly i had interest there was just you know there was people who were interested in donating people interested in connecting with engineers and all of a sudden there's kind of explosion of of interest and empathy in this you know in this group of uh, villagers in the middle of nowhere i they were looking for fifteen thousand dollars to do this thing and you know I, I thought okay well maybe i can spend two months doing this and i didn't have a whole lot going on at that point in time i was you know still in those kind of reflective years after college trying to figure out what i really want to do with my life um, so i'm like ah, i can maybe i can spend a couple a couple of months doing this so i went back to the united states uh started doing a little bit of fundraising for this community. I uh, went back to work, saved us more money, and then came back to Cambodia a couple months later. And what ended up, so what I thought would be $15,000 and maybe two months of my life, uh, I ended up living in Cambodia for almost uh, seven years, working on this project. And two months turned into almost, almost seven years, and then uh, $15,000 turned into a quarter million dollars. It was a huge project. Uh, basically through this like ever escalating commitment of <laughs> of work and interest and kind of fascination, I ended up, you know, spent, basically doing a DIY 
DYI Peace Corps in Cambodia during during my 20s. Um, and that was enabled by social media. So I was really, really fascinated by how powerful this technology was for connecting people to previously un unseen causes for kind of being a positive influence in, in people's lives and for making a difference in the world. So that was really kind of the origin, <laughs> the origin story of how I got obsessed with, with social media, uh, you know, maybe a decade before everyone else did. So that's how I got how I fell into this this work. It's funny how in the early days of social media, it was like so positive. And you even talk about the origin of the like button. And it was like, yeah, we wanted to make it really frictionless and easy for people to like spread positive vibes and say, hey, that's cool. I like that. You know? And it's like so much of these things that I think we genuinely thought was just all good. And we're building utopia where everyone's going to be connected and we're going to just all be, you know, sharing things and um, liking stuff and supporting each other. Um, and then, and then here we are kind of like in, with the fallout of that and looking at kind of places where, well, okay, maybe it's not as quite as utopian as we initially thought. Right. Yeah. And, you, you know, you remember what it was like. I mean, some of us remember what it was like back in those early days of social media, you know, circa 2010, 2011. There was this real uh, kind of euphoria around what social media could be to the world. It, it really felt like, uh, you know, there was the, the Arab Spring. There was all these um, these dictators being toppled in the Middle East uh, using Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you know, there was this this kind of outpouring of, of sudden new awareness of a lot of the kind of problems, harms, and causes uh, that were previously kind of hidden from view and away from mainstream media interest. But yeah, there was a, there was this real kind of moment of, of, of excitement uh, and optimism about what social media could do and what it could create in the world. But it turns out that, you know, a lot of those sane dynamics, right, the things that allow for you to raise awareness for a, you know, a, an emotional cause, uh, a hidden emotional cause in the middle of nowhere um, can also really rally people around any hidden emotional cause, right, and can uh, can give give uh, the ability to, to, you know, raise, uh, you know, raise huge huge uh, awareness and interest and activations and mobilizations for for just about any you know any fringe cause uh, for the be for better or worse we ended up with this kind of new crisis of like all of these the ways these tools made it so good also have made it really dangerous for um, for society overall, right? They've really kind of caused us to be more anxious, more emotionally concerned about things that otherwise we maybe wouldn't be. Um, and also have really like flooded us with a sense of urgency of the problems of the world in a way that hasn't been the case in the past. And the result of that is like, I think a sense of, of unfortunately kind of learned helplessness in which we, we feel totally overwhelmed by the problems of the world. We've reached well beyond the kind of saturation point where we can parse the amount of difficulties that we're facing as a species. We feel overwhelmed. We feel depressed. We feel anxious. And I think kids are absolutely feeling that in some ways more than adults because they don't have any models for what it was like before. So they're just kind of growing into this world of social media and metrics and evaluation and viral content that is really negative for kids' mental health. Well, you have some uh, really interesting research all throughout the book. And really you kind of break down sort of the mechanics of how these like different platforms work and then 
and then mix that with psychology of how the how the human brain works to sort of really uh, unpack why things have sort of gone in the direction that they have, uh, why a lot of this is uh, sort of has become problematic over the years. Uh, and and a lot, I mean, there's so much we could talk about in here. There's a lot of stuff that stands out to me. One thing really is talking about emotions or emotional content. Uh, I thought this was fascinating. You have some research in here from Upworthy with kind of these this, these quadrants um, of of different uh, different emotions, anger, happiness, sadness, relaxation, and and it's it's sort of I guess looking at after a bunch of different tests that they ran, like which which quadrants are the most likely to cause people to share something. Uh, there's really interesting uh, research on this, which is you know we we kind of assume that oh well if you get, put good stuff online and you give people a choice into what they are. Uh, clicking on what they're looking at, then you're going to get the best stuff that people will look at. People want to feel good. So they're going to look at the good stuff. People want to feel, uh, you know, optimistic and happy. So they're going to kind of read those good stories and they're going to click on those things. But it actually turns out that we have uh, real negativity bias in the way we consume content online um, and that kind of happy hunky dory stories that uh, that might fill us with good good vibes are not actually what we really click on. We actually tend to click on stuff that is negatively valenced. So stuff that has uh, kind of uh, uh, you know difficult emotions, uh, right? Stuff like you know stuff that is that that is uh, that is scary. Stuff that is angering uh stuff that is outrageous uh stuff that is kind of sad we will we will you know doom scrolling is a thing for a reason it's like we we really do respond to the kind of the horrors of the world in a meaningful way and we respond to that uh, significantly right and that's part of our part of our wiring in a way i think right we are you know our ancestors it was more it was more helpful for them to be um, attuned to the potential dangers and harms in your community and in your world everything's fine people are doing are great people feel good okay no big deal oh something scary um right someone's someone's mad yeah okay right uh, pay attention to that that's right. And there's a couple different ways in which that works, right? So we're we're highly attuned to status in our communities. And this is a way it really affects kids in a big way, right? So so we within our communities, we we really want to know who is in charge, who is on top, uh, who is down. And that's the way our brains are kind of naturally wired. It's like we we want to maintain good status in our in our communities and our tribes. So so we we focus on on those signals and cues around that pretty regularly, um, which which makes a lot of sense, right? You want like for our, again, for our ancestors, that was a really helpful thing. But uh, in modern times, we've basically built a system, you know, social media has overlaid on our lives, our interpersonal lives, our public lives, our private lives in this very um, intrusive way. And the result of that is that is that we're kind of constantly flooded with these uh, social metrics of of acclaim, of disapproval, of judgment, of gossip, of hearsay, it's, and it, it really is kind of a perfect storm of uh, of of you know triggering some of our innate instincts to uh, to find you know to to figure out what's wrong who's who's doing the bad thing how can we shame the the person that's doing the bad thing uh, you know how can we how can we put people in these hierarchies where we where we're really conscious of of who's up and who's down and that's what social media has done very well it's just built itself on top of some of these very basic human desires uh, all in the name of engagement and you know engagement as we know engagement equals ad revenue on these platforms and that's a pretty basic metric which is if you're using uh, you know uh, advertising to run your business, then you want to keep people on there as long as possible, and that's that's unfortunate. Uh, unfortunately, part of part of the way these tools are designed these days. 
Uh, yeah, I loved some of these really interesting stuff you look at in here, like the, a study of 100 million different headlines showing uh, the top performing ones or uh, some like uh, some of these I loved. Tears of joy, make you cry, shocked to see, give you goosebumps, like uh, kind of uh, it's just data driven, really testing and seeing what works. Not not really malicious, but just, oh, hey, this is working. This people are clicking more on this. And it's kind of the natural reaction that happens. And Something that really fascinated me is um, actually something that uh, is from from Mark Zuckerberg. Actually, is sort of this. He was really looking at kind of the the moderation that they're doing on Facebook and what content is banned versus what content is acceptable, and and it forms this really interesting pattern when you look at kind of the engagement. This was a pattern uh, on on Facebook that that they found uh, an unexpected pattern that they found uh, back. Uh, they they pub uh, publicly talked about it in 2018. They had been they had been uh, um, researching it before that, which is this very strange phenomenon. It's called the borderline engagement phenomenon, which is that if you um, you know if you draw a line <laughs> around your content and you know there's certain things that are constantly uh, being uh, uh, they're always banned on the platform, right? So there's, you know, hate speech and violence, uh, pornography and and that kind of thing are, are, are always banned on these platforms, right? There's always a kind of a content moderation line when it comes to these very, uh, you know, problematic pieces of content. But so and if you if you look at if you put this on a graph of the t of the level of engagement that a piece of content will get uh, average content, you know, kind of average your average social media, normal feed stuff, right? The the baby pictures from your friends, the the food, uh, you know, the food shot for on your Instagram, the um, the job update, whatever, you know, that'll get kind of average engagement. And of course, if you put something that's that that is uh, beyond the line of uh, of content moderation, that'll get zero engagement, right? So that'll that'll drop it to zero. But as you approach the line of uh, of content moderation. So as you approach the stuff that is, uh, that is, you know, it's not hate speech, but it's everything but hate speech. You know, it's not, you know, it's not violence. It's kind of everything but violence. Uh, you know, it's, it's not the, the, the terrible, you know, completely atrocious language. It is like everything but the most, the actually engagement will spike up exponentially as you approach that kind of, that kind of content line. So your content's banned if you, if you pass the line, but if you walk up to the line, and I, I, I speak about this in the book, in the context of line steppers, which is people who have figured this out to build audiences, you can actually just, you know, walk straight up to the line and not quite, not quite pass over it. And then you'll get a tremendous amount of natural engagement from it. And that happens for a couple of reasons. It happens because like we are, you know, like all those things we just said, we are very attuned to kind of the outrages in our communities and the things the the gossip and the kind of juicy and salacious kind of dirty stuff that, you know, that you know, we're, we're, we're naturally predisposed to look at that stuff. And then, uh, and when, when we, when we see that stuff online, we feel called, like if someone posts something that's like a abhorrent comment, a, a terrible, a terrible piece of commentary about, uh, about a group of people that you respect or that you care about, uh, you, we feel called to respond to that. Right. So we, we feel called to actually uh, comment on that and like fight them in that space. We're like, no, you you are actually wrong here. You are mistaken. These are the reasons why you are wrong. Um, now, engagement algorithms, they actually look for what is called MSI, which stands for meaningful social interactions, right? So that was the uh, the original engagement algorithm that Facebook deployed. Uh, and MSI is a very powerful uh, way of rank ordering content. And like, there's a reason why we have engagement algorithms. We have them because it's 
it's we have too much information we just produce far too much of it's impossible like everything exactly and you don't want to lose the important posts um you know underneath the 50 food shots of your you know that your friends made right you want to you want to see the stuff that's most interesting to you so so there's a there's a real useful uh, element to why we have these engagement algorithms but when you're looking for meaningful social interactions those are the things that that the algorithm thinks that you are going to respond to you know some of your friends getting to a a, a heated argument uh, that actually would potentially uh, get more engagement that will get that will get more engagement from you so that that is likely to be served to you above other content so that kind of sticks to the top of our feeds when we open our apps right it's the the kind of disgusting angry conversation is the it is the fight about the news item it's the you know it's the moral condemnation of someone for doing something they think was wrong and it, these 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 moments of kind of moral disgust they explode in our social networks and we have it's impossible to avoid them right because if you, even if you're not interested in the topic if enough of your friends are talking about it you need to be educated on it you need to actually have an opinion on it you need to pick a side of these moral uh, disagreements right so that's that's the kind of the core of the issue and then there's this other piece that happens on top of that which is once kind of old guard or traditional journalism gets involved or you know web journalism gets involved when they see a certain number of people that are uh, that are angry about something right they see a, a really heated discussion on twitter uh, between say like five individuals and they're going back and forth and they're angry about something a savvy web journalist can look at that item and they say oh well look people are angry about this thing I bet more people would be angry about it if I wrote a story about it. And they will they'll take that uh, that small altercation between, you know, say like five to ten people online, and they can write a whole story about it saying people are angry about X, right? So people on Twitter are angry about X. And they then post that online. And then that that story gets, you know, that blows it far out of the range of these, you know, these these uh, five to 10 people that were that were angry about something. Instead, now it's exposed to thousands of people who are now like, wait, what, why are people angry about this ridiculous thing? It only takes one really one person to be angry about something, you know, something ridiculous for everyone to take note. And then they're, you know, everyone's kind of paid along the way uh, in this process. Process. So the people that are engaging in the arguments, they um, they might be getting likes and shares for their posts. The the social media company is getting the ad revenue for keeping us on the on the site longer, and then the journalist is getting uh, getting paid for uh, for for pushing people uh, to their web web and getting uh, to their website and getting traffic from that. Uh, it's basically built this kind of we built this 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 perfect machine for taking obscure obscure outrages that normally would just be you know silly altercations in the corner of the web and we've we've served them up for everyone to pick a side on that particular issue uh, that has that has really elevated a sense of i think of of anxiety and frustration and anger and and in some ways despair when we look at the state of discourse online because it's actually infected big way right you'll see a lot of stories in major news outlets that are just people are angry about stories right people are angry about x stories and yeah that's not that's not good and especially again to bring it back to to teens here it, it's really i think hard for hard for kids to to parse what is like worth fighting about like what is actually like what like why is everyone so angry all the time and that can be really hard on teens we're here today with tobias rose stockwell talking about how social media sites have been engineered 
to produce feelings of outrage, to divide people against each other, and to lead us to form really, really strong opinions about things that we don't actually understand. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I am obsessed with social media, just like everyone else, um, in some ways more so because I've been writing a book about it for such a long time. I had a, a couple of experiences that, that made it into the book that I think uh, were really indicative of this strange, messy way that social media forces us to take pick sides on issues. I didn't have an opinion about pit bulls. I, I really like it. You know, I've, I've heard that they're dangerous breeds before, but I personally have known a couple of pit bulls that are just like really sweet dogs. I was scrolling one day. There was a video. It was like a front yard ring cam footage of a cat sitting on a porch. Uh, this woman is walking her two pit bulls uh, down the street. And you can see the woman approaching from a distance. The cat isn't really looking. And the pit bulls like instantly pull the woman to the ground, chasing after this cat. They reach the cat and they start mauling the cat. And this was just, this is a, you know, kind of an instant viral sensation on, on, on Facebook. But in this moment, I'm just like flooded with emotions. I'm like, this is terrible. Like this is wrong. And I had this instant judgment. So I, I, I quickly jumped to the conclusion, um, as I think most people do when they see that video, that all pit bulls are dangerous, right? And it was only after a really long and kind of painful process that I reevaluated that uh, initial um, impulse that I had about it. If you and I are having a conversation privately, there's a circle of trust that is present in our conversation. And then I'm more likely to listen to the core of what you're saying, the kind of central point of your argument. If we're disagreeing in this moment, I can look at you, I can see you're a real human, you can have a, a real-time conversation. I can hear the inflections in your voice. You know, even though I disagree with you strongly, I'm not going to um, shout at you. The way we actually find the truth is because other people check our biases. We have the superpower, which is that we can see the flaws in other people's arguments better than we can see the flaws in our own. So if we take this one-to-one -one conversation, this basic one-to-one -one conversation that we're having, and then we erect grandstands around it. We, we put people in bleachers on either side of us. We suddenly know now that there's hundreds or thousands of people watching us have this conversation. It's going to change our posturing in the conversation. It's going to change how we perform in that conversation. And if we can even worse, even more so, if we can get points right from players in the audience when we perform especially well in a way that actually appeals to their biases then that is a, a recipe for moral grandstanding and for public performance and not for trying to find the truth not for uh not for active listening not for good debate not for good sense making the value of living in a democracy comes from the ability to share ideas freely and you know, the current battleground around this is social media presently. It's like, what can we say online? Who's censoring who? You know, who's being shadow banned? Who's being deplatformed? And that is the kind of the current flashpoint around the entirety of the discourse on social media right now is like, who is, you know, who is in control of your speech, essentially, right? And yeah, really what it comes down to is this kind of philosophical framework, which I think is really important for recognizing that, first of all, most of us are actually wrong much of the time. <laughs> it's really important to have other people who can have a 
opposing ideas and can call you out on when you're wrong. What social media has done, unfortunately, is made many of these kind of mediated, more approachable pieces of our discourse toxic. And it's made it very, very, very hard for us to find any common ground on things. Social media is so important for understanding for parents and for teens what these dynamics look like, because we're not getting an accurate view of the world through social media. It is going through these very specific set of steps. The information that the world is producing is going through these very specific set of steps that is designed to keep us attentive and keep us scrolling above all else. Want to hear the full episode? Head over to TalkingToTeens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at TalkingToTeens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.